In this episode, I interviewed Chris Toombs, who is the lead performance coach at Seattle Seawolves Rugby. Seattle Seawolves Rugby is part of the MLR, the Major League Rugby, which is the professional rugby union league in the United States. It's it's a new league that just kind of started about three years ago. And so in the beginning of this podcast, we talk a little bit about the MLR uh, after Chris introduces himself, kind of uh, what, what what the goals are, what it's about, uh, and just to kind of spread some awareness for it as it's um, a new and upcoming league that is uh, pretty interesting uh, from what I've what I've seen of it. Uh, and then we get into a little bit of rugby type specific stuff, which is going to be training, uh, conditioning wise, the rugby player, because rugby players have to be strong as well as be able to run up and down the field constantly. And so we talk a little bit about conditioning, but then kind of the main focus of this podcast is going to be on velocity based training. So Chris talks about what velocity based training is. He has a really good background in it and a lot of knowledge. So we get into all this, all, all get into all the specifics of it with um, just kind of how it's used, why it's used, um, and then the benefits of it. So great episode with Chris. Here it is. Welcome to No Weak Links with Patrick Wood. The purpose of this podcast is to help you learn up-to-date evidence-based content and knowledge through life experiences. This podcast is perfect for athletes, coaches, parents of athletes, or any active person looking to improve their fitness or athletic ability. So please have a listen, and I hope you enjoy. Welcome to No Week Links. I'm your host, Patrick Wood, and today I have on Chris Toombs, who is the lead performance coach at the Seattle Seawolves Rugby Club in the MLR. Uh, I brought Chris on today to talk about quite a few things with um, MLR specifically, uh, training rugby, and then also some a bit about velocity-based training, as he has quite a, bit of, quite a bit of experience in that. So thanks for being on, Chris. If we could first just kind of maybe have an introduction of yourself, kind of a background, some past experiences, uh, current position, and kind of go from there. Okay, yeah, thanks for having me first and foremost. It's, uh, it's great to have someone across the world uh, reach out and talk. But um, yeah, do you want the short version or the long version? I mean, I've been in the game for 26 years now, not wanting to give away my age, but um, graduated from Leeds, Leeds Metropolitan University going back to the mid, well, early 90s, really. Um, didn't have strength and conditioning degrees back then, so I studied human movement studies and sport, sport and exercise science. So from that point of view, um, sort of formal education through undergrad and, and master's degree programs. And then I started my kind of, I guess, my performance career working as a personal trainer because essentially there weren't a massive amount of kind of sports performance jobs at that time. And uh, as I've said before, and I've stated on record on other on other shows personal training actually was a really valuable experience when it came to building relationships and forging connections and and I guess communicating effectively with people when that's I guess the cornerstone of good coaching so I had seven years as a personal trainer before I ended up getting a a kind of speculative um, job in professional sport kind of I wouldn't say it fell into my lap but um, yeah just applied like everybody else applied and, and ended up getting my CV or my resume shortlisted for a job at Leicester Tigers who at the time were kind of a, a pretty formidable, rug, well, they still are a formidable, um, you know, rugby program. And uh, yeah, ended up working for the Leicester Tigers for two years while um, England won the Rugby World Cup, which was a pretty exciting time. There's a lot of kind of high profile players at that program, but I kind of, my job kind of spanned um, academy and developing players along with some first team responsibility. So it was a nice little uh, introduction to professional sport with, yeah, getting exposure to a great club and, inevitably at the time 
one of the one of the key uh, head coaches ended up getting fired for whatever reason, having been in, in tenure for a long time. And there's a little bit of uncertainty, so a few of us who didn't get fired, incidentally, just uh, decided to to move to to pastures new, and I ended up getting a a fantastic opportunity in Cardiff in Wales where I ended up working for nine years in the in the Cardiff Blues professional rugby team again kind of evolving roles starting in the in the development opportunities regarding academy age players and then kind of almost um, following a few of the players career paths into the senior program and 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 out the back in a kind of full circle from for a nine-year stint so that was a that was a really um, challenging but also rewarding um, opportunity for me getting exposure to working with some of arguably Wales's best talent at the time and and nurturing some of that into sort of international and and even British Lions honours which is obviously very fulfilling as a coach um, yeah the inevitability of kind of managerial change saw me move to the to the US thankfully blessed to be married to an American so um I have the opportunity to move through a uh, green card and and what have you and I ended up work I ended up working for a company at the time who were I guess tasked with developing rugby in North America as a commercial business as opposed to a a kind of professional or national governing body. So um that was again that was a fun time for me two two or three years in in the US my youngest daughter was born in Seattle so I started to have a flavour of kind of what the landscape in America looked like from a professional standpoint, which was fun. But bearing in mind, I had a young daughter at the time, you know, family decision to come back to the UK. Um, Worked in cricket for one season, which is um, an interesting one for you guys who are based in the US or or outside of of the the US. Um, Really, again, really fun, really challenging. Uh, a little bit of success regarding kind of winning a major trophy at the time, which is is always fun as a as a coach and as a player. But the the lessons, maybe we can delve a little bit deeper into the lessons learned there um, as as we talk. But that was a it was an interesting year. I was away from home two hundred days that year. But like I say, the the challenge and the reward were great in terms of winning and building relationships and trying to nurture a different physical culture rugby being very physically dominant and sort of physical prowess being an important element cricket is a very high skill sport a bit like your baseball you you go you know guys are trying to hit a, a missile coming at them at 100 miles an hour and you know it's a it's a hugely um, skill driven sport but then again the physical demands of bowling for example are, are pretty challenging so it was a cool it was a cool you know opportunity and i enjoyed it thoroughly um I'm nearly there. I'm nearly there. There's three years in university. Three three years in university was a was a kind of I guess an opportunity for me to reflect on my coaching career and and maybe take a little step back from the day to day of professional sport. Which was again, it was a it was a fun environment for me in terms of just almost having a a break from coaching to gather my thoughts and you know maybe formulate a little bit more in terms of how I've reflected, refined, and evaluated kind of how I've delivered in my coaching career and I guess over the last two or three years the kind of coaching itch was something I really had to scratch and it was then that last summer I um I had a phone call with some of the guys from Seattle who I'd worked with in the in the past who kind of looked at me as an opportunity or looked at me as a coach to to sort of fill a, a physical performance void in the Seattle Seawolves program and yeah, I guess from November of last year, I started working remotely with the with the Seawolves, and then from January twenty twenty, uh, started there full time. And I guess we can explore that a little bit more now. Bearing in mind COVID 19s 
kind of pulled the pin on MLR season 2020, which is a huge disappointment for me as a coach and obviously players and, and everybody involved with MLR, bearing in mind it's only a, a kind of three-year-old um, professional league and there was a lot of momentum being gained as as we went into year three. And I guess, like I say, the, the handbrake's been pulled up a little bit from that point of view, but yeah, I'm happy to share as many uh, lessons learned and yeah, some of my experiences from from those 24 years or 26 years in uh, in sport and in sport and performance. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, I guess first, maybe we'll we'll talk about the MLR a little bit. So just kind of briefly exp- explain, um, I guess, what it is and what it's trying to do um, for people that like say because I mean I I didn't know about it until I kind of looked into it a little bit more, and I'm sure other people in America don't know about it. Um, so maybe just explain that a little bit and then kind of go from there. Yeah, I mean the the MLR is the the professional rugby the rugby championship in in the US. It's only three years old now and 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 gathering momentum. Like I said, I think in year one in the year one there were seven professional teams. So the founders of the league are only sort of seven teams deep. Um, it expanded into year two, which was twenty nineteen, to nine teams, and then the twenty twenty season um, expanded again to twelve teams. So in terms of the momentum and the interest in in the sport, and I guess America's got a rich history of you know major leagues so um major league rugby is the the latest edition of professional sport in in the u.s and uh 2021 all being well things will sort of smooth out and flatten out and the bumpy road will get a little bit uh, softer but um there's due for another two teams to expand into the league so essentially what you're looking at within three years you're going from seven to 14 and there's uh right now there's two there's two um conferences so you've got a huge country, as you know, um, traveling east coast to west coast and west coast to east coast can have its own challenges. And inevitably, I'll share a little bit about that as as we go. But um, yeah, seven in each conference at the moment, at the moment, I say, because it, it is up in the air. And I mean, there's teams that may come in, there's teams that may go out. Um, and yeah, in terms of that, it's just providing a platform for players in, in North America to get their talents exposed, to to play professionally. Don't get me wrong, it's not got the, the riches of the kind of what they call the legacy sports. I mean, it's not basketball, it's not baseball, it's certainly not football. But um, yeah, it's it's giving players who, who do play rugby and have a passion for rugby a, a pathway to, to professional and uh, international honours. Mm. Yeah, like I said, that was, that was a good summary, and I, like I said, I think just getting the word out there, it might be pretty interesting too, especially, you know, I, th- I found the biggest thing with learning like cricket and stuff over here is just understanding the rules, and then you can kind of get into it more, so that's definitely something people, are, Americans are going to have to work for to understand those rules, but then I, I do think it's quite an interesting interesting sport once you kind of understand that, so. No, abs- absolutely, I mean, I guess the, the difficulty is, I mean, it took me a long time to, to sort of understand, I've watched American football for, for years and years and years now, going back probably 10, 15 years. And as soon as you start to understand sort of the nuance of the of the sport, you can really sort of delve deeper into into the intricacy of, I guess, the the tactical and technical, and obviously the physical prowess required. But it's the same with the same with rugby. Once people understand what's happening and what's the difference between a maul, a ruck, the the, the definition of, the definition of a tackle in rugby is very different to a definition of tackle in in football. And and I guess the kind of the main difference is the the sort of running clock and the fact that you know ball ball is in play and ball is live much much longer than you know in in football where the physical demands are high but you know it's just such a stop start game so mm-hmm. I guess the the decision making in rugby makes it um, you know you you play offense you play defense you play special teams I guess trying to trying to dial it back to to football analogy. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. You, um, so maybe we can talk first start talking about kind of uh, what you do in your role uh, with the Seawolves and kind of on a day-to-day basis and throughout the season. Yeah, so I guess the, the long and short, I've got um, a fair few hats that I have to wear. I mean, as performance lead, you're looking at everything all-encompassing regarding the, the, the physical preparation of the team. So that's planning and delivery and sourcing out well outsourcing in my case because the staffs are pretty lean in the MLR there's not huge kind of performance staffs like there are in in other sports so so for me it's managing nutrition it's managing sports psychology it's managing sports science it's obviously having a, a strong um relationship with the coaching group and also the the sort of the medical staff so so from that point of view it's um it's pretty multifaceted, but ultimately my my main and core responsibilities are looking after the physical preparation of the team. I guess the the lessons learned from other programs I've been involved in have been really helpful from that point of view, especially as I'm sort of I'm not on my own because I do have I do have support, but the reality is the planning of physical preparation and the delivery of physical preparation is down to me. But also I guess the difficult challenge or one of the constraints in, in major league rugby particularly is the long off season. So the front end, the front end of my kind of start with the with the MLR team, CLC Wolves, was some remote programming, because people are based all over the world. I mean, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of players who are overseas at the moment. I guess because because of the infancy of the league, you've got a lot of um, opportunity to to recruit overseas talent who've played professional rugby in other in other countries. So, just as a, I guess a bit of a caveat, we've got players from England, Wales, Ireland. Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, all coming into Seattle pretty much for the first week in January, but being asked to do some physical work before they come into before they come into camp. So I guess, like I say, the constraints of the season to some degree, and that's, there's a lot of that is logistical and, and financial, like like every young startup business. So first and foremost, preseason was short, so the reality of that challenge was going to be integrating as much sort of on-field conditioning with tactical and technical preparation so the coaching staff and I spent a lot of time sort of planning sessions so that we could get as much physical work done with tactical and technical work so almost your traditional or your your sort of uh, tactical periodization methodology how much how much physical prep can we do while also stressing the skills that you're going to require to to play the game at the highest level so that was a kind of important um start point for me getting on the right footing with the two coaching staff was was obviously essential and the fact that we got on well and we wanted to integrate as much skill work as we could in pre-season was was absolutely perfect for me because I guess traditionally strength and conditioning coaches performance coaches want to have their kind of slice of the pie but but for me it's about not only developing the athlete it's about developing the player so if we can develop players physically outside of strength, power and speed, which we can probably talk about as, as we go. But in terms of on-field physical development, if we can do that in conjunction with the tactical and technical preparation of the sport, then we almost, we're saving, we're saving some of our buckets to, to fill with, with other physical capabilities and we're, we're not using up all of our energy on physical capacity and having no energy left for tactical and technical um, delivery and, and preparation so I guess the the main th- thing in I guess the main theme in in month one of the season or the pre-season was get as much kind of hidden running done as you can and integrate that into your skills training so that's that's first and foremost and then I guess the 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 VBT piece and, and all that kind of stuff dovetails nicely in the the strength and power and some of the the sort of fatigue managing or the the monitoring of 
of your adaptations, I guess, through your strength and power programming. And that's, that's something that, that dovetails quite nicely. Mm-hmm. And then maybe so, we can kind of go into a little bit more on the, on the conditioning. So for rugby specifically, uh, it is quite different. Uh, another, another thing from American football and stuff where you gotta be big and strong, but you also have to be able to run up and down the field constantly. Whereas, you know, the NFL, if linemen move in a 10 yard box, usually, so maybe can, <laughs> yeah, can sure. you talk about that of, of how, um, you kind of get these guys to be big and strong, but also like, how do you train all those different energy systems and keep them fit as well as strong? Yeah. I mean, that's one of the biggest challenges for me of, of working in, in professional rugby or, or rugby generally is the fact that the, the sport does require every physical capacity. And I guess, guess for me, it's just about understanding the needs. There, there is a running, there's a running need. There's a, there's a, there's a speed need. There's a power need. There's a strength need. All, of, all of those things. So I guess understanding how they all fit together, and I guess it's how they all they fit together as an individual as well. From a sports point of view, the demands of each position is relatively specific to some degree. I mean, everyone needs to run. That's one of the things. Whether you're 120 kgs, you know, 260 pounds, 270 pounds, or you're, or you're fast as lightning and you weigh 175 on the wing, whatever it may be, there's a there's a running component that's required for for each position. But I guess, and this is a difficult way to phrase it. I guess the skill, the some of the skill players, <laughs> you know, run run faster and run run more often than some of the. The less skilled players. I mean, rug- rugby guys do like to differentiate the backs from the forwards and the the donkeys from the from the try scorers potentially. But it, it's a you know it's a little bit of a misnomer. But um, I guess yeah, the running demands are going to change from position to position. But everyone's still on their feet for the whole of the eighty minutes. And I guess there's tactical substitutions and what have you, where players of certain sizes and 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 positions get replaced more often than others. But um. Yeah, I guess ultimately, like I say, if you can if you can manage and, and plan your 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 tactical and technical training well, then to the for the most part the demands the running based demands can to some degree get taken care of quite well with, with your with your sport practice. And yes, there's inevitably times when you have to what I consider top up. And also where where some players may need some individual differentiation. But but for me, that comes back full circle to your profiling and your understanding of the athlete population you've got in front of you. So in terms of your benchmarks, we've got international standards across, you know, aerobic fitness, uh, repeated speed ability, strength, power, speed, jumps, whatever. So in terms of that, you then can you can obviously build up your profiling of each player and each player's individual needs within the team setting. So so from that point of view, there's times when guys, guys for example, who tick the boxes for fit enough need to then work on something else and there's guys who are maybe less fit who need more fitness than they do strength and power and and I guess it's just the blend of the demands of the sport for the individual position needs that that you've got in in front of you so like I say relatively speaking if you've got a if you've got a sport practice that finishes at 9 30 in the morning there's a window of opportunity to do some some top-ups with players in terms of what they need specifically and then you've obviously got the the gym, the strength, the power, the the speed stimulus. Obviously, speed stimulus not necessarily being done post practice, but you have you have to look for the windows of opportunity within a training week to to get the work done with individuals that need specific sort of physical capacity development. And I guess the other challenge the other challenge is we've only got a finite amount of time in in the training week to do the amount of work we do. So. I guess it boils down to priority and what we need to do from a priority standpoint to get the the players in the best physical shape to one develop over time but also perform week in week out and there lies the biggest challenge I guess it's you know putting long term development ahead of 
playing needs and when we have the pressure to win every weekend sometimes you know there's a, there's a compromise element inevitably that's going to be required from uh, from a from performance preparation standpoint mm-hmm. and so i guess maybe kind of going back to the fitness you said like you have some general fitness tests that you try to do and they're internationally kind of regulated and these are general time frames do you maybe give a couple of the names for those that you like to use to determine yeah so I guess historically, and it's it's about fashion at the moment. Um, historically, I guess people are using the the yo-yo intermittent recovery. So you've got the yo-yo test, which you know we, most of us have got international benchmarks on that. Uh, Martin Bashay's work now in the thirty fifteen have come to more sort of prominence regarding you know how sports seems to prepare from that standpoint. And then I guess the the most common one at the moment, which is the easiest to deliver as well, and and has a little bit of <clears throat> excuse me uh the bronco test i'm sure you may have heard of the bronco test Bowden Bode, Bode barrett last week just or the week before just ran a 412 for the for the bronco and set the kind of standard for for global uh rugby players i think it ends up i think a, a 412 is around about just re- referring it back to sort of mas and uh meters per second it's about five meters per second for five for five well, what is it? 1200 meters. Mm. So it's not exactly smashing it, but it's, um, it's inevitably a 20 meter, 40 meter and 60 meter shuttle continuously for five reps, do it as fast as you can. Um, but inevitably, like you say, you've got guys who weigh 100 kilos, you've got guys who weigh 80 kilos, you've got guys who weigh 120 kilos, all doing the same sort of thing. I guess it's an interesting one for me. It's, a, it's inevitably, a, uh, it's just a benchmark. It's not a test for me. It's just, you know, can you stay on your feet and run for for five minutes? Which, I guess, referring rugby back to worst case scenarios, never has the ball been in play for more than five minutes many more times than once in a game, if not never in a game. So, it's um it's a crude it's a crude assessment, but ultimately it's one that's taken um, preference in the in everyday. But you don't need any equipment. You need you need some cones. You need a stopwatch, and you need you need guys to run up and down for five minutes. You know, there's plenty of other aerobic tests that that need more time and need laboratories and you know all that stuff. And it's I guess it's an easy way of, you know, getting some sort of assessment on thirty forty people in in five minutes. So mm-hmm. I guess that's that's why it's becoming popular. Whether it's relevant or not, I'm not quite sure. But yeah, and then I guess can we talk maybe in general? I don't know if you. It, um kind of know i mean like i said it's going to be going to be dependent on the the player and the part of the season and stuff but in general maybe preseason and in season how much um how many k's or miles do you have your guys run in um with your forwards and backs and the different differentiation between the two yeah i mean <clears throat> excuse me ultimately uh backs generally run faster and and further than than forwards because of their positional demands and the way they the, the way they train i guess just from for the american listener the the forwards do a little bit more i guess technical work when it comes to things like winning possession through scrum and line out so there's not necessarily a, a, a ton of running there but any forward will tell you that scrummaging practice even though you're not running anywhere is pretty physically demanding and likewise if you're a if you're a second row forward being thrown up in the air and jumping and landing you know 100 times a, a day it's uh it's pretty stressful on your body when you weigh uh 100 like i say 120 kgs or whatever and uh yeah it might not show that the gps data says you're running anywhere but you're certainly doing some work so um to answer the question i guess um it ver- it varies but f- for me 
again, sort of balancing the demands of being fully prepared and, and not too fatigued for, for game day. We're not running more than, I'll just do the quick maths, I should have this in my head, but um, we're probably not running more than 12 or 15 Ks in a game, uh, in, a, in a week rather, plus, plus the game. And the game stats generally um, between six and a half and eight kilometers at, you know, 80 meters per minute, depending on um, the intensity of the of the game. Mm-hmm. So we've obviously got to factor in collision into that as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, I guess for most most weeks, you're looking at about a, a 20, 20 Ks or so in terms of actual running volume. Which okay. for some sports won't seem like much, but for like I say, for the big for the big guys running around the field, it's uh, it takes a heavy toll. Yeah, and then uh, I guess kind of for maybe going more into a little bit of strength and and the power. Do you do because you said a lot of your conditioning is just trying to build into training, so you can get that conditioning along with the technique from the sport. Um, correct sure. With that, um, so maybe just going into kind of that speed, power, strength. Um, what do you necessarily like to do for the for that aspect of training? Yeah. Okay. So I guess, like I say, I'm quite fortunate that I've got access to GPS technology. So looking at some of the high speed meterage, for example, from a from a speed standpoint. Um, I guess it's a little bit about small, small, low volume doses of speed, especially in season. So I guess the the backs, like I say, within their tactical and technical training, are going to do some sort of um, high speed efforts. But again, defining high speed effort to some sort of GPS technology is probably even at the upper thresholds only seven meters per second. So we want guys to sprint more near a max velocity at least twice a week. And it might not even be for very many sets or reps. So um, I guess I have a theme of the week for the, tr- the two main training days. And that one of those is obviously acceleration for the backs and, and max velocity for the backs. And for the most part, the forwards are, are more acceleration focused. But like I say, it might even just be, um, you know, less than, less than five reps in a, in a session integrated amongst other pieces of the, the sort of preparation puzzle. So I guess the four, the backs for me are much more about kind of bulletproofing hamstrings, for example. So we maybe do between, depending on the the way, the way the session pans out. And as you and I both know, the planning of a session and the actual delivery of session is 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 always subject to change, depending on you know how things are progressing in the here and now. Um, I guess I'm looking at between three and five, forty to fifty meter efforts for the for the backs on a on a Thursday before we play on a Saturday. And what we're looking to do again, like I say, we've got live, we've got live GPS feed so we can see, we can see their high speed um, or their max velocity kind of almost instantaneously. So I want to just get guys running as fast, as fast as they can two days out from a game. Like I say, it's limit limitations in terms of like volume and and fatigue to that degree, but it's just that little bit of a dose, that little bit of a stimulus. Um, Like I say, if you'll get guys who are going to hit near, near max velocity in their first, second or third effort, you think, yeah, you're done. Or, you know, guys get competitive. They want to have a couple of races. Like I say, you're probably not going to give them more than five efforts in a, in a training session to give them that actual dose response that you're kind of looking for. And then um, speed and uh, sorry, strength and power. You've got two main lifts a week, really. I think depending on which day of the week you play, whether you play Friday, Saturday, Sunday, there's not many Friday games in the US. It's more It's more weekend-based, so Saturday, Sunday. I guess with your planning and your application of, of stimulus on different days, you're looking at probably Tuesday, Thursday, realistically, are going to be your main lifts. And for me, it's it's full body, and it's a sort of mixed methods approach to, to strength and power training. So I'm, lo- I'm looking at giving 
as many people as possible and it's again it's subject to change depending on the the game outcome and the the physical kind of preparedness of each player from a from an injury standpoint um i'm looking at you know giving them a little bit of speed strength strength speed and max strength every single training session and and how we how we chop that up is going to be again dependent on each individual player's profile to some degree so there's going to be guys who need there's going to be guys who need more strength there's going to be guys who needs more strength speed and there's going to be guys who need a little bit more sort of velocity to their programming for the most part wanting to well giving you a bit more of a general overview the forwards will pretty much do more strength work and the and the backs i guess have a like a like i say a more mixed methods approach where they'll kind of have a stimulus across the whole spectrum of strength qualities really and that might include that might include sled towing, pushing the prowlers. It might include some plyometrics, and by plyometrics, I mean not a massive amount of volume. So that that kind of gives you only sort of between sixty and seventy-five minutes twice a week to to kind of get as much work done, as much quality work done as you can. And I guess that's where uh, I guess my expo- exposure and experience to velocity-based training really helps because for me, it's just about getting people into their sweet spot. Mm-hmm. So it's not like I say, especially especially with the demands of the game and the and the recovery elements through kind of coast to coast travel, for example. We're not in the gym for a long time, but we want to make sure that work is is of high quality. So, so like I say, for me, I guess as as an overall philosophy as well, I'm not a high volume prescriber. So yep. if guys are if guys are going to give me high quality work over three sets, why why am I going to ask them to do five? Especially yeah. when it's going to Im- impact on their their kind of ability to recover. And like I say, I think this getting guys into their sweet spot regarding velocity, for example, when you're asking them to do something regarding strength, speed or speed strength, mm-hmm. you can just you can give them quality reps without giving them high volume. And that's going to help them kind of get ready for their for their weekends day job, which is playing a sport, not being a kind of professional weightlifter. <laughs> yeah. And maybe for uh, you just kind of want to explain generally what velocity based training in what, what it is. And um, then we can kind of go in a little bit more on how you use that yeah so i guess velocity based training is just using a using a, a technology to to benchmark and assess well there's there's various reason, way, ways to do it but to to basically benchmark and assess the quality of the work you're doing regarding your your strength and power training and there's there's tons and tons of devices now that um that you can use for that my my personal preference is is the push band which is uh you know enable in 21st century enabled i call it i used to have exposure back in the day you know telling telling the story from leicester tigers days that's when i first got in, introduced to to velocity based training through tendo units and, and gym aware the linear position transducer which is that tethered system and as and as technology's evolved you've now got sort of bluetooth wireless um more more accelerometry than you have tethered devices but um yeah for me there's the i guess the the usage is two or threefold primarily one one it engages a, a player population because there's an there's an innate competitiveness around it so asking people to to either lift heavy things and give them an objective feedback marker is is obviously very very useful asking them to lift light things as fast as they can and giving them an objective marker elicits some of that kind of um competitive juice which if ultimately if you if you elicit the competitive juice you you get output that you're after so if you get if you get athlete, if you get athlete intent you get athlete output and if you get athlete output our chances are you're going to get you know athlete adaptation so that's kind of the the kind of key messaging around some of the objectivity and, and the markers that i use it for but also i guess um 
the other primary reason to use it is to get athletes to actually or you deliver the stimulus that's going to create the adaptation you're after across that whole strength curve so so for me i guess historically you've got guys who like lifting heavy weights all the time and that's to some that's some degree you're kind of going to buffer those people around well actually there's other strength qualities that you need so what i'm asking you to do in this particular session is is move 100 kilos at one meter per second and why am I asking you to do that? Because I want to develop strength speed. I don't want to just to develop maximum strength. And also, I guess the, the secondary part of that is if you want to actually almost protect athletes from, yourself, from themselves at times, because athletes who like going to failure actually are going to create that little bit more fatigue that from a central nervous system standpoint, actually you're going to need to be um, slightly fresher at the weekend. So actually, I don't want you to work to failure. I actually want you to work within this buffer zone and that buffer zone is actually going to help me deliver a better stimulus to you, which is going to helpfully create a better adaptation, which is going to hopefully create a better athlete. So, so that's the kind of primary reasons why I use velocity-based technology. It's to protect, it's to protect athletes from, your, from themselves to some degree, but also it's about being as prescri- prescriptive as possible within some constraints in terms of delivering the stimulus that you're asking to deliver. Mm-hmm. and 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 minimizing that that sort of fatigue element yeah do you use that uh kind of the beginning of sessions and do some sort of test set to determine if um or i don't know i guess i don't know if you work off percentages or rp or, or just the vbt um but do you do some sort of kind of test set in the beginning to see what they move at to then determine their working sets kind of what um they should kind of if it varies a little bit each day yeah, so you can use the band as a, as a basically a monitoring tool as well. And also, yeah, I mean, to answer your question about percentage-based training, um, no, and ultimately VBT has replaced the need to sort of prescribe off percentages. Bearing in mind, I guess, looking at some, someone like Brian Mann's work, your, 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 your daily readiness has a fluctuation of potentially, they say, about 18%. So if you think 80, 80% of one rep max today could almost feel like 98% or 62%. So ultimately, using velocity can be a great, great way of um, looking at how the day is going to look in terms of what you're going to prescribe and how you're going to then potentially um, modify your programming. So like you say, I'm, I'm used to a guy who maybe um, can hex bar deadlift, for example, 200 200 kgs and i can look at the the sort of preparation sets for that for that player and track um to some degree their their load at 100 100 kgs and, and 150 kgs and and over time i can look at if if for example um they typically move 100 kgs at one meter per second in their preparation sets and they move 150 at 0.7 meters per second for example and if i see that if i see that number dropping for me that to some degree is a little red flag that neurally they're not quite ready or they're not quite fresh enough to sort of lift at the intensity that we wanted them to lift for that day so we can modify their loads accordingly and also in the here and now with the instantaneous feedback um, if I ask guys to lift at 0.5 meters per second and they obviously are lifting at 0.3 meters per second for a load that they'd be they'd be used to lifting at 0.5 I know that we've obviously got to take some weight off Mm-hmm. So it might be it might be that in terms of developing a, a strength stimulus, that given the demands of the sport, 150 might do the job in week one of uh, the season, and it might be 130 does the job in week three with the accumulation of fatigue and the accumulation of collision, 
And ultimately, then you're looking at a stimulus where the strength or the numbers on the bar are not going up, but the stimulus that you're delivering is hitting the spot. And that's just going to fluctuate on a week to week basis based on a lot of other parameters. Are you with, are you with me? Yep. Yep. So the, accum- the accumulation of fatigue, the accumulation of travel stress, the accumulation of all sorts of things, you know, under recovered, whatever it might be, allows you to make, um, I guess, micro adjustments to the training loads on a day to day basis, given what you're seeing in front of you on any given day. We've obviously got other monitoring methods as well. Um, yes, we integrate RPE. Yes, we integrate some jump testing before before um, strength and power training. Or, yes, um, so we've got we've got a picture we've got a picture of an athlete, and ultimately, um, there's many methods to to sort of track and, and monitor players. But I guess yeah, the adjustments in the in the strength and power training sessions are, are happening kind of on a day to day, week to week modification basis, based off what we're seeing from the from the numbers that we're generating with either the, the the first couple of sets, the preparation sets, or or even in the work sets, we can we can micro adjust as we go. And like I say, if we're trying to develop maximum strength and guys are guys are pulling too fast, for example, on their on their core lifts or their their main lifts, then we we could easily just we add weight and we know what sort of velocity zones that these guys have got to lift in to to develop the the physical quality we're after. So guys who say, oh, that feels really heavy today and they've kind of done their final rep at 0.6 meters per second for a lower body lift, for example. I know, I know that's not heavy enough to develop the stimulus or the adaptation that I'm after. So I say, sorry, pal, you've got to add some load to that. <laughs> and ultimately then uh, guys can start to manage their own, their own workload with, with what the numbers that they're seeing. And there's that, that's the athlete education piece that's quite exciting as well. Because guys are engaged, objective feedback and competitiveness is kind of like I say the key to the key to getting output. And like I say, if you get an output, you're then going to get athletes who are developing physically. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, correct me if I'm wrong, but are are there some different numbers to where you can determine if it's below this? You know, the real, like there's a there's some research numbers that if they don't hit, the, like they're going to fail at this number. So you can kind of tell if they're you know point whatever, then they're really close to that failure rate. Yeah, so each exercise has got an, an individual sort of um, MVT, uh, minimum velocity threshold. Mm. So yeah, so from my point of view, like I say, I, I want to try and develop. <clears throat> excuse me, I want to try and develop the strength quality with with a sort of minimizing technical and you know physical breakdown. So for example, if you are working in the in max for develop max strength, I know that a squat for most people. I mean, very heavy, very strong squatters can probably um, get a 0.25 meter per second effort. But I think most most squatters in a sort of sports performance sense are, are kind of a 0.3 meter per second minimum velocity threshold. So I don't really want to take players too near to their MVT, only because you you're laying yourself open to the sort of technical breakdown of a lift. But also, like I say, that the elements of fatigue and the underlying fatigue mechanism of you know your your delivery of your of your strength stimulus has implications for you know your next strength stimulus which is only two days away your training stimulus for the for the player in terms of the overall training load of that player so yeah taking players near near sort of technical failure is not not really the best way to to utilize your your training time because inevitably you've only got the the recovery bucket so full Mm-hmm. And the nearer you, the nearer you take them to failure, the, the longer they're going to arguably take to recover from that from that stimulus. So ultimately, we want to keep them as fresh as we can for the weekend. So, like I say, we want to 
We want to make them lift heavy, for example, when you're trying to develop maximum strength for obvious reasons. But you almost want to think, well, 80, 80% of 1RM traditionally is less fatiguing than 95 plus. Mm-hmm. Depending on how many sets, reps, you know, the volumes and intensities and what have you. But for the most part, you want to give the athlete or the player, sorry, because they are players first and foremost and then athletes. You want to give the player a, a strength dose, but it's a bit like the snake analogy. You don't want to give them too much poison that they can't recover. <laughs> so it's it's just enough. Um, yep. And obviously what's just enough is going to change from day to day, week to week. So that's where your kind of your coaching intuition is also overlapping with what the objective numbers on the on the device are, are telling you and shit and helping you make an informed decision on mm-hmm. and then maybe can we talk a little bit about and it's probably it's going to change during season and stuff i know but maybe just some examples of how you kind of use it to target certain aspects throughout the season and maybe kind of um identify like I don't know if you know the numbers off the top of your head or just generally like the speed, strength, strength, speed, um, straight up, you know, kind of all those different ones and kind of how you use them throughout the season or is it just in all of those are kind of integrated um, throughout like the whole entire season? Yeah, sure. So I um, I integrate, like I said, a mixed methods approach to, to strength and power training where I want to basically make sure that every single week there's there's a percentage of each of those within the training program. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I think from a from a profiling standpoint, forwards forwards traditionally will do more what I'd consider traditional max strength work, but also need to do some strength speed and some speed strength work. Mm-hmm. And and the and the backs are kind of much more balanced approach across all three of the the main physical uh, or the main strength qualities. So I guess yeah. I only pretty much use the velocity-based training device on their core, their main lifts. So yeah. that for me, I mean, the, the, go, the go-to for most would be, I mean, it, it is a kind of preferential bias of mine, but would be the, the high handle hex bar or trap bar, whatever you want to you define, uh, for their lower body strength lift. There are other people, there's an, there's, there's an individualization. Guys like to squat, guys don't even squat or deadlift. They might push a heavy sled or whatever it might be. So there's, there's, plenty, of, there's plenty of options for individualization, but for the most part, the, the general kind of, so I know what my minimum velocity threshold is. I know what my sort of thresholds are for the ranges of strength qualities I want to develop. So for me, um, developing maximum strength, you're looking at 0.5 meters per second and, and lower, not going anywhere near 0.25, which is that kind of minimum velocity threshold for the most part. It is relatively consistent across um, athletes, irrespective of their strength levels. That's something that's quite interesting to to think about. So whether you squat 250 or whether you hex bar 250, 200 or 150, your, your kind of minimum velocity threshold is ultimately in the in the same ballpark for all of those irrespective of strength and that's consistent across you know upper body and and lower body exercises the just that minimum velocity threshold is is different for each um so if i wanted to develop strength speed i'm looking at sort of loading uh players between 0.7 and 0.9 meters per second and i guess going back and referencing some of other people's work someone like brian mann for example you're looking at even periodize, periodizing through the velocity zones as opposed to periodizing through a percentage for example so there's times when i want to move, when i want the guys to move those loads faster they're still relatively heavy 0.9 meters per second in week 1 0.8 meters per second in week 2 0.7 meters per second in week in week 3 so there's a, there's there's inevitably a kind of wave, wave loading approach to 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 the velocity-based elements, and then if I want to move, if I want guys to move at at, at high velocity, then you're looking at loads of between, well, anywhere anywhere over one meter per second, really. But 
realistically between 1.2 and 1.3 meters per second so you're you're encouraging players to move loads as fast as they can and then it's up to you it's up to you to to get the the loading right with what you're what you're seeing on you know how fast that bar's moving and i guess that also it just encourages players to understand that there's not just maximum strength as a strength quality yeah and and there's a reason why we want to move say for example 100 kilos really fast mm-hmm. because ultimately because ultimately you're trying to improve someone's rate of force development to get a 100 kilo person out of the way as fast as possible yeah and that's yeah. a nice that's a, that's a nice reference point for us it's like you know the average player is at least 100 kilos so mm-hmm. try and move that at, try and move that at 1 meter per second plus which yeah. ultimately means that if if you're in a if you're in a in a contact situation you can you can express your force as quickly as you can yeah you know i think that that kind of made a good point and it kind of puts into perspective too kind of what all those mean and why they are um important throughout so i guess i have a question kind of how how do you incorporate it with a, a team setting cuz it's do you do you have enough push bands for everyone or do they kind of come in separately or how does all that work cuz i know like individually it might be pretty realistic but how do you guys make it work for a team yeah that's the there lies one of the big coaching challenges but yeah i mean so i i have access to th- to 3 mm-hmm. which is not not an enormous amount i don't have a budget to have one per player which would have been unbelievable but um i guess the reality for me would be yes you can make it work um, the fact that we use a commercial gym, bigger, I'll give the bigger a, a buzz, bigger ground performance in, in Renton, just outside of um, Seattle city center. Um, we have to, because of the size of the facility and it's a commercial, it's a commercial facility, we have to stagger the entry of the players anyway. Mm-hmm. So there's guys who might be doing their, their prep work while there's guys doing their, their main lifts and then there's guys who go and get a coffee before they come into, into the gym. So we've, we've, got, we've, got, a, we've got a natural stagger so regarding the natural stagger, we've probably got four or five or maybe maximum of 10 guys using, their, um, using the push bands at any one time. So between three you've, got three, you've got three to a platform or you've got three to a training space. You can pretty much manage, and we've got a, we've got a great sports scientist who runs around like a headless chicken for, for 60, to, 60 to 75 minutes, get, gathering as much data as he possibly can. So um, I guess from that point of view, it can work. And yeah, I mean, because we've got a... We've got a a kind of bias lift, i.e. the the hex bar, for example, for lower body strength and and power, is is the kind of go to. We can set up we can set up various loads, various you know we've used an iPhone for the for the each individual device, and we can basically set the the sort of the two hundred kilo bar, the one hundred and fifty kilo bar, the hundred kilo bar, and we can just we can work through the kind of preparatory phase before the guys then start maybe doing their their heavy work. And ultimately, then you can mic you can micro adjust as you go. So, hundred kilo prep set, hundred and fifty kilo prep set. Okay, well, your first work set, your first work set maybe at two hundred kgs, and then we'll assess and make it. We'll make a judgment on the on what happens next off the back of what we're seeing with the numbers at that point in time. Mm-hmm. And some and some guys are going to take some weight off, and some guys are add and some guys are going to add. And yeah. because we have got we have got manageable numbers, we haven't got 40, 40 people training at any one time, which with obviously three push bands would be pretty much close to chaos yeah. we can we can individualize and we can manage loading on a on a micro level um session by session yeah how how uh, much would you say uh, like an average difference would be like so i know the said you said the study shows you know 18 percent. you could be different do you do you notice yeah. that it can be that or is it more like in a five percent range kind of like off what they usually lift do you kind of notice what the average is 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, the reality for us is it's not 18% for the most part. And I guess that's because, you know, we understand the training process and we're trying to minimise, like I say, that, you know, accumulation of fatigue. Um, yeah, it's probably within, you know, you're looking at 5, 10 kilos at max. Mm. So you're looking at you're looking at 5% and ultimately, um, I guess, if, yeah, I guess well, not even 5%, 2.5% potentially, depending on if it's a 200 kilo hex bar deadlift. But um yeah, you're you're micromanaging and you're micro loading. It's not it's not it's not huge numbers. You're not taking you know a full twenty kilo plate off each side of a bar when it comes to you know reducing or or adding uh, load dramatically. You talk mm-hmm. you're talking about you're talking about yeah t- ten kgs max probably. Yeah, and there are times when there's guys I I call it go day go day or slow day. There's guys when a go day and they can really get after it they they are adding 25 kgs to the bar but for the most for the most part you're in the you're in the ballpark of you know 10 10 away from normal whatever normal looks like for each individual player and i i think i because again this is kind of something that i've been looking into more of the velocity based training and i think it's a really interesting and really good training tool but it's not a lot of people have you know access to a push band or the ability to do this in a big team setting are there certain ways that um, you know of implementing it somehow in that like I've heard of doing and I don't know anything about this but I've heard of you know if you can't hit x amount of reps in five seconds you know that's you're done or anything along those lines uh what we got using the velocity based training tools um either like cheaper versions for people or just practical ways to somehow implement it um or is um, it literally just the push band or any big de- or any device is going to be the only way no I mean, obviously, having a device is is going to give you that objectivity that's going to help massively. But also, I guess, yeah, not again. My my bias, I do work for push from an educational standpoint. But the the price of entry is relatively cheap. I mean, I think you're looking at three hundred bucks for a ish. Don't quote me on that price point. Um, it's about three hundred. I think it's three forty nine retail um, for a, for a device. But what that device actually gives you is is obviously valuable intel. And it's mm-hmm. for me. For me, again, it's it's worth the investment. Um, I guess there is there is li- I don't know if there is literature out there. Maybe Jonathan Weekly and those and those guys who are doing some great work in in VBT at the moment might might be able to tell you different. But for me, I've always because I've had a fair bit of exposure to the the velocity based training devices. I understand which kind of speed zone equates to a relative percentage based one one rep one rep max so understanding kind of where a percentage base may equate to a a velocity is going to is going to be of help but ultimately i guess you need the exposure of you need the exposure of uh, velocity based training to understand that you know 0.7 meters per second for someone who can squat 200 kgs is probably about 140 kgs Mm-hmm. Approxim- approximately give or take a few kgs yeah. so i guess understanding the the sort of percentage based spectrum and the velocity based spectrum and overlapping them is is relatively quite a difficult challenge if you've not had the exposure to velocity as a measure of kind of uh stimulus mm-hmm. but uh, i guess to answer your question it's worth it's worth the investment as opposed to trying to trying to get the same output yeah is relatively more crude without technology I guess is is the sort of best way to put it. Yeah, um, and yeah, I know technology keeps getting you know better and better. And as like you were talking about yeah. the advance advancement, so I'm sure coming up one day they'll have something to where you can implement it into a team. Um, but I guess do you have any kind of just maybe main summary point or point or two of kind of velocity based training? 
yeah, I guess, like I said, I, I think the key, the key points for me is engage, engagement with the athlete is absolutely, is, is number one, irrespective of what the, the data and the objectivity is telling me as a coach. I think just having athletes engaged in the training process is an absolute win for me. And I've mm-hmm. never, I've never seen, I've never seen players who don't give you full effort when there's a device measuring how fast they're moving it. Whether that's a heavy load, and there's plenty of examples and stories around, you know, athletes that I work with who, you know, pay much more attention to the training process when there's technology around to to help guide me and them in yep. the process. And I guess that that's the key fundamental takeover for me regarding velocity based training. It's it's the engagement with the athlete piece, but also the secondary piece, like we've said already, is that the objectivity and the quality of stimulus that I can then or the athlete can can deliver to themselves mm-hmm. is that much be- much more high quality. And ultimately, they are sports players first, and you're using strength and power training to help develop the physical qualities that are going to allow them to be better at their sport. So the the athlete the athlete engagement piece is huge, yep. because you 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 know not everyone wants to come to the gym after field practice. Mm-hmm. They they love playing their sport. They love being a rugby player. They're not like I say. Some of them love the gym. Some of them not so much. So if you can get if you can get that piece going first and foremost, then you're. I'm not saying you're halfway there, but at least you've got half a chance of really helping an athlete engage in their physical development process. And mm-hmm. it is a journey that they need to go on in combination with you as a coach. And like I say, the objectivity just allows us to provide a quality stimulus week in week out. Yep. Yeah, and and monitor and monitor their fatigue to some degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all good summary points on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess just one final question here to to end it, which is one I like to ask people. Um, so whether that be velocity based training, like rugby strength conditioning, strength conditioning in general, anything in the profession, uh, what would you say your biggest kind of pet peeves are that you always feel like you're telling people, you know, no, this is really how it is. You know, this is your what the general stigma is or thought process is wrong. Uh, oh, good question. Wow. Uh, oh, jeepers. I think, I think the, I mean, the advent of social media has been a, a blessing and a curse for, for strength and conditioning. Mm-hmm. I think the hardest, <clears throat> excuse me, I think the hardest challenge we've got as an industry is, is the filtering, the, the sort of the noise. Yep. And that's, it's, it's a pretty global, it's a pretty global answer. I think the challenge we've got is, um, I guess the pet peeve for me is lack of rigidity to answer your question. I think as I've evolved as a strength and conditioning coach, performance coach, whatever you want to bracket me as, I've become much more in tune with developing a player as opposed to developing an athlete. Mm-hmm. And I think this this may upset a few people, but I think the rigidity to everyone must clean, everyone must squat, everyone must bench and almost bucket them in the, in the powerlifting slash... It's not well. Obviously, power cleans not or cleaning's not um, Olympic power powerlifting. Yeah. It's yeah. I mean, for me, you've got to look at an athlete's individual capabilities. And for me, and funnily enough, I had a conversation yesterday with a with a fairly high profile rugby player who who who, who suffered at the hands of a strength and conditioning coach because the strength and conditioning coach made them clean, made mm-hmm. them squat, and ultimately. Uh, rugby particularly is a collision based sport where for me you've got to have 
the capacity to have a flexible framework of programming to elicit the adaptation that's required for the specific outcome that you're looking for. Yep. So making making someone clean when the guy said to you, it really hurts my back or you know, it really hurts my elbow or my shoulder, whatever it might be, you're doing the athlete a disservice by having such a rigid framework of, oh no, you must clean, you must squat, you must bench. For me, there's tons of guys who've played professional rugby at the highest level who don't do any of those three things. Yes, you might do, but you're going to do horizontal pushing variations. Yes, you're going to do um, triple extension and force absorption work. You don't need to do a clean to do that. You don't need to squat to develop maximum strength in the lower body. You have to, as a coach, have a flexibility within your framework to do what's best for the athlete. So my biggest pet peeve would be those who've got such a rigid philosophy on you must do this you must do that there's got to be flexibility in your programming design and that's about how you can communicate and you can build relationships with players and also have confidence that there are other methods of developing maximum strength or strength speed or speed strength whatever it may be there's not the holy grail is not three different exercises mm-hmm. yeah all, all good points there well thank you chris very much for being on uh if you just want to give uh, where people I know you have an Instagram and any other accounts where people can kind of follow you for information you share or learn from you for push or anything like that sure no thanks um, yeah I'm very original I am Chris Toom 71 on Twitter and Instagram um, I probably use Twitter to share as much positivity as I can within the industry I don't kind of try to dwell on the negativity of of some some of the platforms that are available and um yeah i guess those are the two that I'm, i share mainly on um regarding you know strength and conditioning performance and uh and the integration of all things uh high performance awesome well thank you very much for being on i really appreciate it no problem thanks a lot for having me appreciate it too